You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Glad to be with you. Music Show is a very cool show that happens every Wednesday night from 9 to 11 p.m. right here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Every week we have a live band performing in the studio that's from around here. And we'll even play your band on the show if you send us your CD. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 for the local music show. They're cats. America's most popular pets, but also the pet most likely to die prematurely from disease, poison, animal abuse, and collision with vehicles because many people let their cats roam freely. To protect your cats from harm, please keep them indoors. A safe cat is a happy cat. Hello, listeners. This is DJ Blackout. You're listening to the show, Radio Blackout, here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This uh, marks the end of the show. Um, We listened to the entire newest release from the Flaming Lips, Embryonic, off of Warner Brothers Records. A quick rundown of those tracks. Convinced of the Hex, The Sparrow Looks Up at the Machine, Evil, Aquarius Sabotage, See the Leaves, If. Gemini syringes, your bats, powerless, the ego's last stand, I can be a frog, Sagittarius silver announcement, worm mountain, Scorpio sword, the impulse, silver trembling hands, Virgo self-esteem broadcast, watching the planets, uh, that was the last one on there, and um, it's a it's a really great album. Um, Go pick it up. Go download it. Uh, excellent band and should be supported. Uh, right now we're listening to Arvo Part. The track is Solemn off of the album Litany from ECM Records. Up next we have Living Writers with T. Hetzel. And uh, that's going to come at you in just about a minute or so. 
So uh, thanks for listening to Radio Blackout, and please, please keep it locked, WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Hey, what are you trying to play? I'm just trying to figure out the bass line to that Paula Abdul song, Forever Your Girl. Oh, yeah, I love that song. I wish I could hear more Paula Abdul on the radio. You can. On WCBN, FM Ann Arbor. Really? 88.3. It's all Paula, all the time. Awesome. Hey, baby. Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Um, Brian Delaney is here engineering, and I'm so pleased to have on the line R.A. Reiki uh, joining us via telephone um, from L.A. Um, R.A., are you are you here with us? Yes. <laughs> um, and and I'll just say uh, a. a uh, a real quick word before launching into R.A. Reiki's um, a short bio on the back of his novel out with Ghost Road Press UP um, that R.A. is uh, joining us but he's got a bit of asthma so it's 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 nice of you to still be up for doing this R.A. I, I appreciate it. 
mean, it's, it's, I've done probably five screenplays before that aren't really that good. And this one, uh, when we did the reading, it went fantastic. As a matter of fact, after the reading, that's when the producers kind of demanded contracts for me because the reading went so well. Um, but it was really easy for me to do because I knew the story so intimately because I'd already written the novel. So I kind of busted it out like within a month, and then I've been rewriting from there. Um, there hasn't really been any surprises. The only surprises is in a, in a I, I'm, I'm, I wish I could talk about this more, but I cannot believe I've 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 got to meet probably what I would argue is the best actor and the best actress in Los Angeles to talk about my book, and I, I just couldn't when I'm sitting across from those people. Um, and I don't want to name drop, especially because in case they're going to get involved, I don't want to I don't want to say just yet until the contract stuff's done. But I I just I've been stunned at the level of talent that has been interested in the book. You know, as a matter of fact, I was telling my mom recently that what, what this actor had said of all my writing, and my mom like was almost crying because she couldn't believe that I <laughs> it was this little engine that could have. I just never thought like these sort of things would happen for me. But right now everything's on track. You know, I'm hoping that uh, the film version of UP will, will be shot next year, and then I'll ha I have two novels that are coming up with Ghost Road Press next year. So things are really nicely in track for me. And that's Ghost Road is out of um, Colorado. <laughs> Ghost Road is out of Colorado, RA. Is yeah, the press? out of Denver, and it's a small press that I just didn't realize like these sort of like some uh, interest would happen from being on a very small press. But it's an amazing press. They <laughs> they uh, have signed Douglas Brinkley, who's CBS News, and Rafael Alvarez, who wrote for The Wire on HBO, and. Um, uh, uh, God, uh, an American Book Award winner, I forgot his name, uh, and then Judge John Bullock, who uh, was the University of Virginia Henry Hoynes Fellow. So they sign like really good writers, but who are operating a bit outside of the mainstream. He doesn't, he's not looking for like sort of like Dean Koontz fellow type fiction writing. He's more interested in really original voices that um, the, the big time publishers tend to overlook. I know for me that I had sent to some <coughs> fairly big publishers and agents and and got rejected because they said the book was too experimental or whatever that means. Um, although the, the book was selected for the Serrani Riser series and for a while it was uh, contracted under uh, uh, Overlook Press, which is a subsidiary division of Penguin Putnam, but uh, they ended up pulling out. Uh, it was post 9-11 and they were doing cuts and one of the things they cut was my novel. So I, I ended up getting this offer from Ghost Road and went with that, and things have fallen along really nicely. Yeah, and it sounds like you've developed a, a like a relationship with this publisher, which is is not you know that's not something to take lightly either. Like it'll be a like... yeah yeah. Matt Davis at Ghost Road said, uh, "What else you got?" And I sent him three more books, and he said he wanted to publish these two, possibly the fourth. And uh, he's kind of said to me that he wants us to be sort of like. Uh, what Charles Bukowski did with Black Sparrow, Black uh, Sparrow Press of, of yes. you know, a lifetime thing where he'd be he'd consistently keep putting on my books and I mean as far as an author that really feels nice that I, I've got that in my back pocket you know um, yeah yeah so when yeah, does that yeah. happen <laughs> what's your what's your um, writing like now are you able to find time to are you producing um, new fiction or is it more something where you're you're actually more focused on um, the the screenplay and and sort of other aspects of what happens to books in the world now it's, it's I have a crazy life I got um, two minimum wage jobs out in California because I'm trying to survive the uh, I keep pushing the producers to, to come up with option money um, but we're trying to get the contract square with them first before we get into option stuff but I keep telling them I really need the money so I can just commit myself to writing <coughs> so I tend to write at night and kind of forego sleep and the big thing now that I'm working on is definitely the screenplay just because there's so much interest in that but I have a memoir that I got in my back pocket and I got um, another other, uh, it's a horror novel that I, I need to shop around with so I get some time. And then uh, this other experimental novel and a, and a ton of plays. So, yeah, I've got a lot 
that's lined up. And the nice thing I told Matt Davis I would like to, like for my next horror novel, I, I kind of see it. It's, it's a bit more commercial. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to see if any like larger publishers would want to take it. And then the nice thing about that is I get my name on a broader level than Ghost was able to do. But then I can keep doing some of more, my more experimental novels with Ghost Road. So and when you then, when uh, you say it's... And then that's going to get more of a name for them that if I can get uh, some books on maybe some bigger publishing you know, yeah, houses sounds... and then still yeah. do um, some really... Uh, avant-garde industry writing because like the next book that they're putting out is called <laughs> portrait of the artist as a boogeyman it is a completely experimental horror novel i'm deconstructing horror i, I kind of wanted i get sick of the cliches of it and so i just wanted to sort of implode those um but it's a bizarre book but i'm really excited what people uh, do with it when they read it so when, <laughs> so when you say experimental you're are you always meaning that you're kind of going for what's expected in like a particular genre and then exploding it or or like or avant-garde like what like what are some what are some ways that you pee is because uh, you actually seem to um not take offense but you sort of balked at them saying that that was exper- too experimental <laughs> like so what what do you think i mean it's you've got four for four voices in here is, is that one voice too many or what makes you pee yeah, experimental have you read uh, the whole book um got a good thing to ask me on the air already <laughs> oh sorry have you read part of it yeah yeah i have yeah. have read part of it <laughs> well, well, uh, thanks for sending it experimental or uh, what is your response well, I, I mean, I'm more interested to hear you say what what you believe about it because it's also well, something that it seems see like it. you. I, I mean, I had people, these agents, who would just roll back and say the characters are like the voices, but it's too experimental. And I just wanted to ask them, well, what does that mean? Right. You know, so the thing that I love about it is when I had these people passing it up, I was like, I really thought it had a lot of potential. I thought it could go pretty far. And right now it's going in its 35th week as the bestseller in fiction for Ghost Road. You know, there's three producers interested. I'm talking with A-level talent to turn into a film. Um, you know, there's, it's a good talk and it's, it's I, I, and I just, I'm, well, do you think I it's... love for Matt Davis is when he has like all this attention going on and it's making him some money. I like that because he had the guts to, to take on the book and publish it and, and now like for, you know, there's a, uh, for example, uh, University of Michigan Press is somebody who passed up on it. And, and you know, the guy is listening. He, he shouldn't have. I mean, it's a great it's a great novel. You know, I had Ann Beatty, who's in Best American Short Stories of the Century, called my house to tell me how much she loves the book. You know, I mean, that's... Well, well I, really I wonder... I, book, especially especially the, the, the last uh, chapter I'm really happy with. I just think everything comes to fruition nicely, and I cannot wait. If it's made to a film, I can't wait for the closing shot. I just really stunning well ra i really i really hope that it goes well i hope this wave continues and i've enjoyed talking with you we're we're at the end of our time and 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 thanks for thanks for um i don't know like you coming on uh talking with us over the phone even though you've got the asthma going on pretty badly today um but nice to talk with you again you've been listening to ra reiki his his novel with ghost road press up um more coming in 2010 maybe even a film I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. We'll be back after this short break with Scott Lasser. We'll be back.
Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. If you're just joining us, um, we were talking with R.A. Reiki out in L.A., and now I'm so pleased to have Scott Lasser here in the studio. Um, You just got to town? You flew from Colorado yeah, <laughs> on a plane. Half an hour ago. <laughs> That's right. So the, so the man is on the fly, and uh, if only we had some coffee around um, instead of just Brita water. But anyway, we'll do our best, right, Scott? I'll try. And um, Scott is in town to read, among other things. He's, he's come here to read tomorrow, Thursday, October 22nd, um, at quarter after 5 at the University of Michigan Museum of Art. That's UMA for all of us who... Uh, I don't know, are in with the art museum uh, acronyms. I don't know. Um, and without further ado, I'll read Scott's short bio in the back of his book, um, Out This Year with Knopp, um, The Year That Follows. Scott Lasser is a graduate of Dartmouth College, the University of Michigan, and the Wharton School. His novels include Battle Creek and All I Could Get. A native of Detroit, he lives with his family in Aspen, Colorado. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for coming. So this is um, coming to to Michigan is is a homecoming of sorts. Then flying into Detroit. Do you always recognize the flight path? Because I feel like they switch it up on me whenever I'm coming in. Uh, well, I'm always coming from the west, so it always looks pretty much the same. <laughs> you go by Ann Arbor and you kind of come in and usually land from the north. Sorry. Uh, oh no, that's okay. We're <laughs> we'll just do. Um, yeah, I sound very loud. I don't. I'll, I'll try to not speak so loudly here. Um, so, so you grew up in Detroit, and then you you also went to school here in the so the MFA program. Um, and I noticed that Andrea uh, Beecham has been very instrumental in your books, like in in all the acknowledgement pages. Uh, Andrea gets a, a shout out, and she does because she's one of my readers. So, I, you know, I met Andrea. I think my first three minutes on campus and uh we've been friends in the hopwood room yeah, where else <laughs> yeah. they let her out of the hopwood room yeah in the hopwood room yeah i think i think i think by now she can go wherever she would like <laughs> in, in theory that's not what she tells me <laughs> right. that's true um and so and so one of your readers that would be and what does that mean to you as um i mean obviously uh you've got we've got literally three books on the table here now and i know you're you're um in other projects at the moment but um on your website you you've had multiple jobs you're not just a, a writer you've been a ski instructor english instructor i'm thinking maybe here as a lecturer that's true <laughs> waiter steel worker maybe in detroit um government bond trader of and currently a financial advisor um but you're a writer and as I well. I also teach a class in fiction now. Oh, you do? Yeah, okay, so is that is that in Colorado? It's in Colorado, my local community college. Oh, nice. So now, again, with the teaching. The I didn't think two jobs was enough, so I went and got a third. Yeah. So what does it mean to you as, as a writer to have like a, like a good reader? Like when you say, she's one of my readers, Andrea Beecham, what? Well, I think different writers work in different ways, but I'm one that I, I try not to give anything to somebody until I can't figure out how to... Um, make it better and so when i can't you know i'm at the point where i'm just at a loss i don't basically when i'm working on it and i realize i'm not making it any better then then i'll give it to a reader some people like to give out work in progress i almost never do that and so when and why get, is that is that like a um because i don't need superstition or i don't need or? one of my friends to tell me to go back to work i know that myself I and mean, i think it's important for a writer to be um a good editor of his or her own work and so i you know i try to be as hard on myself as i can and but at some point you're you know you're kind of lost in the forest and you need some outside eyes to look at it and that's when i send it to andrea and you know Derek green is another another person who he got his mfa i think two years after i didn't and we've we met in the i think i met andrea and Derek on the same day and uh and they are still you know two of my closest friends that is kind of amazing, isn't it? It's almost like some things seem pre preordained in some strange way. Like they just they Yeah, I can't think of two people who'd be any more different, but you know, we're all friends. So. Yeah, well and good to have different close readers, I'd imagine, the the input on the It is. I you know, I, I think that you in a certain way it's good to know certain readers well as people because you it helps you interpret what they're saying and, and also, you know, Basically, your readers tend to be too nice to you. You have to he listen 
sort of between the lines, if you will, to what they're really saying. I'm like, all right, I got it. I'll work on that. You know? There's these, there's a theme emerging here, Scott, because you're like, I can be hard on myself. <laughs> People don't. You're really rigorous then with your, the way, uh, I don't know, with your. Aren't all writers? Um, no, I think people come up. I, I don't know. Maybe they are, but they don't. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Because I think we all have our methods. I don't know either, but I think they are. I mean, I think that that's how you you get something that you're going to be happy with is by being hard on yourself. I mean, no one can really be harder on, I mean, like, well, let me step back from that. The world is hard on writers, right? I mean, it's just, look, you know, I have all these other jobs because you can't really make a living writing, and writers teach all over the country because that's really how they get paid. There are very few people that write write books and make a living from it other than, you know, some of the the perennial people on the bestseller list who I think now have their own staves. I, I don't, you know, you, you read these, <laughs> they're, these they're things. They're of. <laughs> right. So, you know, but, but for the most of the rest of us who aren't that lucky, I mean, you, you end up doing something else and, it, you know, often it's teaching. And, and you know, I, I just, I made, I taught for a little bit after I graduated here at the university and then. Um, oh, you stayed in town to teach. I stayed Scott. in town to mm-hmm. teach and I taught, you know, I don't know if the names are still the same, but English 125 and 225, and I'm sure they probably are still the same. Yep. And, uh, you know, and then I, I left, I think, really because, well, I probably shouldn't tell. I'll tell this story. A friend of mine was working at a, a different university in the University of Michigan, and I'm just going to say they have an MFA program, and I don't think it's a place that when you think of MF, when you think of this school, you don't think Master of Fine Arts degree or, for that matter, even the humanities. And... Um, they were looking to hire a fiction writer, and Richard Russo applied for the job. Now, to be fair, at the time, Richard Russo wasn't the Richard Russo we know today, but he published two novels, and I thought he was pretty great. And I said, you're going to hire him, right? And my friend said, well, we're really looking for a woman. And I figured at that point, I'm a white guy, and I don't even have a book out. I'm not going to get a teaching job. I should go do something else. And so I did. And is that when you went to work for Lehman Brothers? Is Actually, that... no. I, I went to, uh, I moved to Aspen because I got a job um, working for a show called Wild America. It was a public television nature show. And I wrote nature shows. And no, I knew nothing about animals before I got there. So how do you write a nature show? What Walk us through that as a, a writer's job. <laughs> it's it's an interesting job. It's really a two-step process. You write the show. You sort of do your little research on the animals they want to do animal on. Like, I'll just give my favorite one. I did one on skunks, right? So you research the basically the life. It's basically a lifestyle, a life cycle story. So you you research the life cycle of skunks, of which it's there's about five different types of them, but they're all more or less the same. And then you write the show, and you give that to the the cinematographers, the you know the the guys who are actually taking the pictures, and they go out in the wild and try to film it. And they come back with whatever they come back with. So and you'll say something about like the birth because you're saying the yeah, life cycle. Shoot, you know, so you're, we you're basically see. You, you're writing a script for the show, and and then you you give it to the guy and he goes out in the wild and he shoots whatever he can shoot. He may get something that you wrote and he may get something you didn't. He may get something better. He may not get what you want. You don't know. You bring that back. You edit it and then you then rewrite it with whatever pictures they were actually able to get. And then as the writer, um, do you know who's going to – do you actually get to do the, the voice overlay well, too? I worked for or a guy it? named Marty Stauffer who's a, from you – know, if you know who Marty is, then you know who Marty is. He said this guy from Arkansas, you don't. But he, he had this show on – I mean, Wild America was probably on PBS for 10 years or something. And he was sort of this sort of – Marty's kind of like when he's down home, good old boys from Arkansas – and, oh, uh, so he was the voice of Wild America. He, it, it was Marty Stauffer's Wild America. That's right. <laughs> and uh, and you know that they, they had a. I'm going to say that it was a. The other show at the time was called Nature, which I think may still be on. And uh, in Nature, I would say was for the more educated viewer, and Wild America was for the more down home viewer. So how did you did you work like slapstick moments with skunks into it or how did you like how did cuz yeah cuz then you'd write differently if you were well, writing Well they told for me what they told me was Marty. that nothing would be too hokey and they were right. Yeah. So hey, go towards a, the hokey. Let's just say I got paid a lot more for writing those shows than I did for teaching English. So why did you leave that job? They lost their contract. Oh, okay. All right. Which but, leads to to the MBA because by the there was a Christmas there where I had, you know, I had not a graduate degree from here, an undergraduate degree from pretty good school. And, Dartmouth. Yeah, and I uh, was waiting tables in a Chinese restaurant. This is probably a typical writer story. 
And I was just thinking, yeah, in, in a town where like everybody seems to be like a multimillionaire, and I'm thinking, you know, why am I so damn poor? This is just stupid. I should do something different. So I, uh, I was, I happened to have read, and it's funny because I just wrote an essay about this that's going to be published in the Wharton's Alumni Magazine. I wish I had it with me, but it's, I had my, some MFA student pick me up and she took my bags to the hotel, so I don't have it with me. But ah, I read, um, that would have been great. Oh, every, well. Everything for me revolves around books. I read Liar's Poker, Mike Lewis's book about working at Solomon Brothers in the 80s, and I, I read that book and I thought, damn, I could do that. I, that, that, that'll be easy because, it's just like a locker room, and you know, before I, I was used to be a jock. So, um, <laughs> so what we've just um, Scott's uh, alluded to one of his novels, books, yeah. <laughs> all I could get, oh, yeah. and then meaning uh, taking place on Wall Street, Wall right? Street, right? And, and, and then Battle Creek, which is really a baseball novel set in Michigan. Set in Michigan, right? Yeah. So uh, you know, I just thought, well, I the could lives do... of men up close in right. locker rooms is what you're saying, right? So I just figured, hey, I I can I'll do well there. I'm just pure hubris. I mean, I was like the stupidest dumbest thing don't ever do things like this but i i didn't know so um i called one of my friends said how hey, i got i want to be a bond trader how do i do it he laughed at me he said well if no one's going to hire you from where you are now you got to go to business school so i applied to business school i went and i amazingly got that job and your life has been but i you know my idea was since however it works out i'll get a book out of it i mean really it was like it wasn't so much about like it, i may be a successful business person or I may not but I'll definitely get a book out of it so as I, as I say in the piece for the the, the Wharton magazine I, I'm probably the only person who ever went to Wharton on a literary impulse you know it was just the idea that's kind of great mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we come back we're going to talk uh, about your latest book the year that follows um, yeah we'll just and you'll read a little bit for us I'll do whatever you want me to do <laughs> <laughs> how kind of you yeah. Um, you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Scott Lasser is here. His book, The Year That Follows, will be back. If you're just joining us today in the studio, Scott Lasser is here. His book, The Year That Follows. Um, so so we were talking about your other books, Scott, and this, The Year That Follows, is is very different in, in a lot of ways. One of them, um, 
it's like not, the it's most not obvious. Group of guys. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's not a, a man. <laughs> There's not a group of men at the center of this one, right? It's it's Cat, a woman, mm-hmm. uh, as the the narrative um, voice, the, the the main person you're following through the novel. Um, so, with the building of characters, was there? It, did you find anything really strange about writing from? Uh, with the voice of a a woman when you've been in these i think what was it you said somewhere like the bastions of maleness or something like baseball and wall street or men without women in some Mm -hmm. contexts well i'm not sure what the question was but i'm gonna run with it um that was it more difficult no i mean you know women are people too i you know it's (laughs) I, i don't think that because my first two books were about these bastions of maleness that uh that it meant that i couldn't do something different it was just i knew those two worlds the world of baseball and the world of wall street really well from my own personal experience i'm a guy i've led i've led that life and i knew details about those worlds did you play baseball too then is that what you mean by that yeah i did i you know my it was really really robbed by my father who um also university of michigan grad and he um he ultimately played baseball in the olympics in 1956 and then he was a baseball coach for years and years and years so i sort of grew up in that world i played a lot of baseball yes i played football and i ski raced which i both of those sports i actually like to play and are more interested in but when i sat down to write a novel somehow it was about baseball and i just think that has to do with family and also yeah you dedicated it to your father and also i think that that baseball in a, in a funny way, it just lends itself to being written about more than a lot of other sports. It's my theory. I don't know if it's true, but yeah, I wonder why. It seems that way, and uh, and so that's you know, and I always had this idea I shouldn't write about it because it wasn't a serious thing, you know. But then yes, you, you it's very serious, really, isn't it? Um, yeah. Well, what's serious and what's not serious? I don't know how to answer that. I, to me, to me, it was serious, so I just did it. But I, I, I think what it is is that when you, for instance, go and get your MFA. You know, you're sitting around a table with nine or ten other people, and um, I was probably the only jock in the room. Uh, you know, so you you come out of that world where it's like it's not, it doesn't, you know, nobody else is writing about those things. So, or only the popular novelists are writing about those things. So you wouldn't, you don't think to take them seriously. But I might take Solace for, for instance, and you know, Bernard Malamud's first book was about baseball. I mean, you know, you don't the natural. That's for everybody who doesn't know. That's the natural. So, um, uh, you know, I think that you. You're, you really should feel free to write about whatever you can write about. Yeah, whatever you have that sort of insider right. knowledge about. Right. Not to make a bad pun, but it's interesting. So in this book, I'll tell you how this book came about. Yes, do. Um, it really grew out of the second book, All I Could Get. I was, I'd was i finished that, that book in the summer of one, and my editor called me and said, listen, um, why don't you come into the Knopf offices, meet the people, the marketing people, help your book. You've never been here, which I hadn't. And so I said, sure, when should I come out? She goes, well, anytime after Labor Day. And my daughter's birthday is September 9th. So it was Sunday that year. So I said, well, how about if I fly out on the 10th and I'll come in on the morning of the 11th? And she said, great, I'll set it up. So just by that weird coincidence, I happened to be in Manhattan on 9-11. And, you know, you don't have to be a writer on a day like that to think, like, want to write something down. And, you know, there's all this crazy stuff is happening. And, uh, and you know, I'm thinking, how am I going to use this in a novel? And, you know, it only took another seven years. Yes, and and um, it took a long time. Like to write about something like this, you'd mm-hmm. think maybe because you say you don't have to be a writer to write about something like this, but to write about it well, like to write about it. What I meant was you didn't have to be a writer to think like I want to write this down. This is something I need to remember. And, yeah. And so you know, I, and also the way I was looking at it is like is, a love poem, right? I was looking exactly. Or how about just an email? I mean, anything, right? I mean. Not to be too. I mean, there's this idea that that um, it's a weird thing about writing. I mean, on the one hand, you know, it's this mysterious thing, right? Nobody can really figure out how it gets done well. And on the other hand, you go to school and you learn how to create a story the way you'd build a, a workbench or a you know you know like a, the craft a, a tools. Porch. We talk right. about it, right? right? So you so you you have to have the tools, and then somehow you make this thing that's somewhat magical. And I I don't really know how it happens, even though I've you know. I've, do my best I, I mean i think the way it really happens is you just keep banging your head against the wall until the wall cracks and or your head does or both and then you're done and something about imagination in it <laughs> Cause, right because if you're making it right you're into something 
else that you're living in, yeah, in a way. A, that's a parallel world. It's an world. interesting idea, because if you, if you ask two people to describe the same event, they'll describe it differently. So is that imagination or is that reportage? I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, I don't know where one stops and the other begins. I mean, I think you just you put yourself in that world, and then that is just the world. It's not like, to me, it's, I mean, I know it is imagination, but I just think of it as the reality. Did did you feel like you were taking a risk about writing um, this a book about September 11th, or did you just feel like it, it was a story a... you wanted to tell, or what? Uh, and and I feel like I read somewhere that you you wrote many pages, and those had to be set aside. And, I actually and that's wrote a, a whole, few questions. I wrote a whole different novel, and just you know, I got. You always know you're in trouble in a novel when you're not sure whether you're at the end or not. I mean, if you don't know that, then you should just start over, and that's really where I got to. Is, you know, th- you know, three, oh, you know, over three hundred pages in, which is enough for a novel already. And I'm like, am I at the end? Am I not at the end? I'm like, ultimately, I decided to start over, and I just started over. Different character, same idea, different characters, and um, and even the early drafts of this book, the cat woman character was actually a man, and then I changed that, which I think really made it better. And uh, why? Why do you think it made it better? I think it made it better because the because also I it, the, the you know the the story revolves around you know Cat goes and has dinner with her brother and he the, on September 10th of 01 he tells her that he thinks he's fathered a child because his ex girlfriend just got back from three months of maternity leave and they broke up a year ago he does the math he thinks he must be the father of that child and then the next day he goes to work he's never heard from again and she goes to look for that child and I think it works better having a woman single mother go to look for her brother's lost child than the brother i and I, i'm not even exactly sure why but for me it just worked better and also they're important in the book is a relationship with their father and i think it also worked better there was a father-daughter relationship so i think when i made that change it made me throw out you know three quarters of what i had but then i could write through the end relatively quickly was it so after you reached that in the first drafting of the story with mm-hmm. maybe the male as a protagonist then um did you like w- how did you know that you wanted to stay with it like how did you know that there was still something that wouldn't let go of you you know that you would go back to it and to have the fortitude you know do you see what i'm asking you like because yeah, <laughs> it didn't let you go and and to write about september 11th maybe at that point you could have been like well, maybe in another decade or whatever. Yeah. So when I made the change, why did I decide to keep going with the change? Yeah, did it just not let you go? The story that you wanted to tell or, or what? I think when you're writing novels and you, you make those decisions, you got to write them for a while to figure out whether it's, it's going to work. And I, I think you can't, you can't get discouraged by the fact that you think it's horrible. Of course you're going to think it's horrible. Or, you know, you, some days you're going to love it, some days you're going to hate it. And, and the, the key thing is that there's a, there's a guy I used to work with on Wall Street, and whenever he wanted you to do something, he said, listen, put your cheeks in the seat. And I think that's, that's good advice for a novelist. It's like you've got to sit down and do it. And, you know, it, and, and only after a lot of that are you going to have any idea whether you're going to keep it or not. I, you know, I just think you have to be um, unspoken in this conversation. Is like, isn't it hard to throw things away? But really, it's liberating to throw things away. Just write them if they're not good, throw them away, and write something else. The great thing about being a writer is that you don't have to do it in public. So, you know, you wait until you've got the right thing before you show it to anybody. It's it's not like, you know, being a stage actor or a stand-up comedian where, like, if you're bad when you're originally doing it, then you're just not good. This is, you know, believe me, I'm most, and I bet this is true of a lot of writers, they're horrible most of the time, but what you read is just the good stuff, and thank God for that. For, do you mean for all of us? For, <laughs> no, all, for the for, writers, for, for the all writers, writers and the, the readers. Writers and the readers. <laughs> Why right. don't, would you read us something then, Scott? Will sure. you Will you... Uh, Maybe instead, I don't know how you want to set up the scene because you're going to the middle of the novel. Right. I'm going to the middle of the novel. The great thing about fiction is that you can move back and forth in time pretty easily. So um, this is actually um, a short section from, I'm going to read a, a portion of a short section um, from Kat, the protagonist's point of view. Uh, on the morning of 9-11 when she's obviously, her, her brother worked on Wall Street, he left early, and she's gotten up later, realized the attacks happened, and she now goes to look for him because she can't, can't get him. That morning, she went to the barricades. She walked the whole way, past people, hordes of them, moving in an opposite direction, everything on the island flowing north like a river in Maine. The subways were down the path trains. Thousands were walking, dazed, an army in retreat. To the south, the smoke rose, a huge ash-black column that turned white at the top and tilted east. 
Otherwise, the sun was bright. It was a day almost without shadows. At the, barric at the barricades, powder blue with yellow lettering, she found a row of newbie cops, still in their khaki academy uniforms, and a throng of people trying to go south. I live there, damn it, one guy kept saying, a big man with a shaved scalp, though Cat could make out a small headband of stubble. He was going bald and obviously decided to get ahead of it in hundreds of droplets of sweat. You can't go, said one of the cadets. You can't, not now. It was a young woman trying to get to her boyfriend. Please, 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 she said over and over, though no one listened. One cadet kept saying, none shall pass, none shall pass, none shall. Both sides had their mantras. She moved down the line. This was 14th Street, miles from the attack, and were it not for the barricade, it might have been difficult to know that something had gone awry. Kyle's cell phone was going straight to voicemail. Someone finally picked up the office line, but the someone was in London, where the calls had been routed. Kyle's building was evacuated, the woman said. As far as the woman knew, everyone was safe. Maybe the air smelled funny. It was Kat's first day in New York for a long time. Six years? Seven? Maybe the air here always smelled funny. By 7th Avenue, she found a real cop along the barricade. He was older, perhaps a teacher at the academy. She explained that her brother was missing. He didn't answer his cell phone. She was worried. She could feel it physically, a panic clutching at her stomach. Eh, no one knows anything, the cop said. But you don't want to go down there. Forget about the phone. There were cell antennas on the tower, so lots of calls aren't working. He's got to get out of there on foot. If I was you, I'd go home and wait for him to walk through the door. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. Ooh, the weight, right? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, right after that, there's a scene in which she comes across a group of people standing in line um, at a building, and she just gets in the line. She doesn't know why they're standing in line. And then she asks the guy in front, why, am I, why are we standing in line? They're standing in line to give blood, right? And she doesn't, but then she realizes, well, I can't wait. I have to go back to the, you know, and, you know, like I said, you're in, I was in New York that day, and I, I, um, part of the little thing I'll talk about tomorrow is how do you decide what to put in and what to leave out? And I think it's far more difficult to leave thing to figure out what to leave out than what to put in. There's a, there's always a ton to put in. It's taking away the stuff to like sort of carve the stone down to what actually is going to be the statue. That's the difficult thing. And how do you do that? What is it about the drafts that you're writing? Or, yeah, I or think the... you uh, rewrite endlessly. I mean, most of, in fact, all of what I read, I'd never experienced. I just... I didn't go to. I I did go down towards 14th Street the day after, not because I was trying to get through, but because I actually went to dinner at my agent's house who lived on 16th Street. But I wasn't there the day that day. But you can imagine how it would go. Um, the line of people waiting to give blood. I did come. That was something that I I saw and probably might not have thought to put in if I hadn't actually experienced it. Um, and of course, the interesting thing was they didn't really need the blood because no one was really injured there were, you either died or you got out so um but that, it gave people you could feel like you were doing something i suppose well and that. and yeah I, I think that was you know there was uh i think there was that, that well documented 75 to 78 hours in new york where all new yorkers were nice to each other before they went back to being new yorkers you know but it was really pretty no well, offense <laughs> well <laughs> just kidding new yorkers know it's true uh but that those those few days were really amazing days in the, in the city and you know I was trapped there, and you couldn't for a while. You couldn't leave, so um, uh, you know it was. Yeah, I think there's an image you say for Cat trying to get a rental car. It was like being on the the floor of the like a trading uh, frenzy or something. Yeah, that that was that's what it reminded me of because I actually did that. I found this rental car place in Paramus, New Jersey, and got a ride out there. And and I figured, you know, that that everybody'd be trying to kill each other to get rental cars, but in fact there were. There were a ton of rental cars because New Yorkers from all over the country had rented cars elsewhere and were driving them back. So everybody was trying to get home. That, that was what was the main thing is everyone was trying to get home. And it wasn't easy to do. Let's take a short break. Um, we'll be back in a moment. Uh, you just heard um, 